Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we are here. It is the week of June 6th through June 9th. And there is absolutely no political or legal or any other kind of news except, I got to tell you this, Carson, the internet's a buzz. The world's a buzz. Internet is a buzz. Oh, the news. Everybody's talking about this, and I, I, I can't wait to tell you what it is. Leo Messi's going to Miami. Is that the news? No. It's your chicken talk, Carson. Oh, really? Everyone loves your chicken oh, talk. Oh, they love the chicken talk. And that's the only thing people are talking about today. Really? On June 9th, 2023. It's all chicken talk. There's no other news in the entire world. You haven't seen world. anything. No, there's nothing happening. Is there political nothing, spheres? Nothing. Nothing no. happened okay. this afternoon except everybody's talking about your chicken and your Popeye's number one. And oh man, they disagree yeah. on Burger King and Wendy's. I know. Hot takes. I, apparently, I didn't realize that chicken talk would, you know, create such consternation. Oh man, it's it's very, very interesting. And, and I don't know what's going on with you. Besides no, chickens. Yeah, besides chickens, uh, absolutely nothing. You know, not too many updates. I did see, as we all get excited for football coming this fall, how weird is it to see a potential schedule for ne- the Nebraska Cornhuskers, middle of the Midwest, with USC and UCLA as regular opponents? Is totally that, Does weird. that feel weird to you? Yeah, it does. I mean, California is beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. The, the fun thing will be... What's going to happen with all of the older uh, folks who love their big red football mm-hmm. when there is an 8 o'clock local kickoff <laughs> in in Southern California? So 10, 10 p.m. Nebraska. We get some late night uh, football oh, shenanigans. Have we seen 1 a.m.? There will be folks who have not seen 1 a.m. in. Well, you, do you think you'll be able to stay up for those? Oh, you insult me. I, I, I'll be fine. What I would have struggle with, and this is if they started them early, you know? Oh, that's true. It's those early games. That's true. So, yeah, and I don't think we'll have that problem. I have thought that, though. I mean, f- to have an 11 o'clock kickoff mm-hmm. on the um, Pacific Coast, that's 9 a.m. local. No Correct. way they're kicking off. That Actually, early. that would be one. Sorry. Am I correcting you on the record? I mean, the, did I say East Coast? I meant Pacific Coast. So if you, a local USC kickoff, it was if it was 11 here, it would oh, be 9 a.m. Yes, there. there. Yes, thank you. I'm following Holy you now. Holy time zones. <laughs> let's not talk about yeah, that. Uh, yeah, move on from time zones. <laughs> but do, anyway, yeah. Let's Put, do the ex parte summary for like this it. week. Um, I think I you think have I'm the first, first one. Yeah, go so, ahead. Uh, state v. Amon deficient consult. Pine Tree Neighborhood Association versus Moses and Hill, reasonable or excuse me, restrictive covenant, cousin Eddie clause, state versus Muratella, where'd the meth go? In Ray, interest of TW, DDCCA, uh, standard of review, first impression, and a pellet procedure. Let's start off with your case, Carson. Wonderful. So State via Mons, and if that name rings a bell or me mispronouncing that name rings a bell, we had this case in the Court of Appeals a few months ago. And so this case is on a petition for further review from the Court of Appeals. And what happened in this case was that the Court of Appeals had determined that Amon's uh, trial counsel was deficient for failing to consult Amon's about whether or not he wanted to appeal. So not ineffective for failing to file an appeal, but ineffective for asking whether or not Amon's wanted an actual direct appeal. Uh, the appeal, 
originally in the Court of Appeals had been from the district court denying uh, that appeal and finding that trial counsel had not been directed to file an appeal and that, that, that he was not defective. The case that is relied on here is the United States Supreme Court case Flores versus Ortega, and the Court of Appeals explained and found that counsel can be ineffective by failing to consult with the defendant about an appeal, and the limited scope of that is is essentially twofold, that it is uh, reversible error or that a counsel, trial counsel, is uh, not effective for consulting the appeal when there is reason to think that a rational defendant would want to appeal or that a particular defendant reasonably demonstrated to counsel that he was interested in appealing. So basically here, did this person want to appeal or did they have reasonable grounds where you expected there would be an appeal? Would be an appeal. And so the Court of Appeals found that Amans had demonstrated a reasonable probability that but for trial counsel's failure to consult him, he would have timely appealed, and thus he had shown the requisite prejudice to um, be entitled to a direct appeal, so a reversal of the district court and, and allowing that direct appeal. Here the, um, here the Supreme Court essentially addresses that the failure was with Amon's failing to assert in his verified motion that counsel was deficient for consulting him. And so because he had not raised that initially, there was no record to actually review that. And the Supreme Court says that they cannot reverse a trial court's decision based on an argument or theory that is raised, and again, we hear this many times, for the first time on appeal. And so the Court of Appeals had no grounds or ability to actually address this issue, and they didn't have the facts to address this issue because it had not initially been raised. And so the Supreme Court said that essentially the Court of Appeals was reading between the lines here to even find the facts to substantiate the fact that the trial counsel was defective for not ad advising the defendant of his right to appeal. And therefore, the Supreme Court reversed the judgment of the Court of Appeals, remanded to the district court with instruction, or remanded the case to the Court of Appeals with instructions to affirm the district court. Interesting. I think that's the first uh, reversal of the Court of Appeals we've had. Maybe not. I don't think so, but I think it is the first reversal of a Court of Appeals opinion that we had initially yeah, well, done. Right, right. Yes, that's, yes. that's what I'm talking about is the ones that we've covered, not uh, ever, yes. uh, of course. I had Pine Tree Neighborhood Association versus Charles Moses and Melissa Hill. Uh, this is a restricted covenant uh, case. Uh, Mr. Moses and Miss Hill owned a uh, piece of ground, a lot in the Pine Tree Neighborhood Association's area. Uh, it goes into a little bit of a factual history here. There was a uh, restrictive covenant placed on the ground in, back in the 80s, I think, and then it expired, which I guess that happens, but it expired and they had to renegotiate those. But there's no dispute about privity of contractor, the fact that this restrictive covenant is applying to the defendants here, the Moses and Hill, uh, apply to their par uh, property. Now, the reason I uh, called it a Cazanetti clause, which I hope, sticks i don't know I, th I thought of that maybe maybe i got it from somewhere it's an interpolation thing uh, but what they did is they they parked an rv in their driveway and didn't move it like cousin eddie i love that that's great and Thank if you. there's people listening to this who, who don't know the cousin eddie clause break out a little christmas vacation a little national lampoons and and figure out what the 
the Cousin Eddie clause Anyway, is. there's a Cousin Eddie clause in the restrictive covenant. <laughs> uh, parked an RV in the driveway for more than 48 hours for shame. And um, there was no disagreement about the restrictive covenant applying to Moses and Hill. Um, and the Neighborhood Association eventually uh, sought a permanent injunction against Moses and Hill uh, regarding their placement of the RV in their driveway and their failure to remove it. Now, uh, the defendants, Moses and Hill, they go, hey, uh, these other folks have had stuff in their driveway and you guys aren't doing anything. So we say that it's uh, unenforceable as applied to us because you done waived it uh, because you failed to enforce it against other folks. And it's unenforceable as applied because it applies to fewer than all the lots. Because when they re-upped the covenants in like the 2010 or whatever, they didn't have all of the lots. They only had a, a substantial uh, majority of the lots. So because it wasn't everybody, that wasn't uh, applicable to them. Now, both parties file for motions for summary judgment. Now, there's some good discussion here regarding um, how to keep your mind clear when you're a trial court and you've got dual cross uh, motions for summary judgment because you got to keep your mind on the standards for each one and address them separately because otherwise it's very easy to get in there and go, hey, I'm just going to decide the thing, right? Because you've got cross motions, so I'm going to decide facts and I'm going to do that. No, you kind of have to weigh the standards on one and then go into weighing the standards on the other. And there's some good discussion here about how to do that. Ultimately, the Neighborhood Association uh, was granted a summary judgment and the permanent injunction against the defendants uh, telling them to move your RV. Now, uh, there was a on appeal here that the Nebraska Supreme Court took up. They go into those cross-summary uh, judgment discussion that we've already talked about, and there was a, a big discussion of waiver and acqu- acquiescence as a defense in restrictive covenant context. So, you know, how much is enough to say that they didn't, they allowed some things and didn't enforce it? Here, they say there's no evidence to suggest that the homeowners association or neighborhood association knew of other folks doing this kind of activity and, and just avoiding it and like they're targeting Moses and Hill. Um, there's no information of that in the record. So, the summary judgment that was granted in favor of the neighborhood association is affirmed on appeal. Okay, next case we come to is State versus Muratella, and this is an appeal from the district court's overruling of a motion for new trial and motion to withdraw plea based on an underlying conviction of possession with meth possession of methamphetamine with intent to distribute. And this is another one of these cases, and I'm wondering if we're ever going to actually reach the end of these edigma cases where the issues all surround this individual's compromising of basically the entire Nebraska State Patrol crime lab and all of the drugs that were being processed there. With post-conviction, no, we're not in our lifetime. No, yeah, so we'll get to read these forever, but maybe this will be some of the last direct appeals we see. Maybe not. Uh, either way, that that is what underlies this. And for anyone who hasn't listened to the podcast, again, this is the basis of this is there was an individual who was stealing drugs, narcotics from the Nebraska State Patrol Crime Lab, and then I believe selling them. I you actually did the direct appeal, John, so maybe you can speak to that. Was she selling them? It wasn't just use; it was stealing them and then selling them on. Yeah, I don't remember. Okay. I wasn't. Doesn't matter. I didn't represent her. I think I just read it, right? (laughs) Yeah, I don't believe you represented her. Just to be clear. I believe we read. Yeah, you read the case. 
Anyway, moving on past that, Mertella was asserting here that Edigama was involved in the chain of custody, and because she was involved in the chain of custody directly on the meth that he was alleged to have possessed, that it was an an irregularity in proceedings of the witnesses for the state which prevented him from having a fair trial, that it was misconduct of a witness for the state, surprise which ordinary prudence could not have guarded against, an insufficiency of evidence that could not sustain the verdict, and newly discovered evidence material to the state's case, the full full extent which could not be known, and he also asserted that the acceptance of the plea amounted to an error of law. The interesting piece here, like with a lot of the other cases we've read here, is that the state did not oppose either of the motions. However, the district court still overruled the motions. On appeal, Mertella argues that he uh, should be able to have a new trial even though he pled no contest because of the fact that it is a conviction. The state says that he shouldn't be able to get a new trial at all unless there was a trial to begin with. And so this discussion is a little bit interesting. And here the Supreme Court says that even though the Nebraska state legislature changed the statute wording for what a new trial actually is, and I believe, and I don't have it in front of me, but I believe it was 1982 or something like that. They say here, even though the legislature did not address if you could have a motion for a new trial based on a plea conviction they adhere to the precedent prior to that and recognize that accepted pleas resulting in a guilty or no contest plea are verdicts of conviction and therefore Mertella can apply for a new trial the issue here is that Mertella still has to demonstrate that Edigama's indictment materially affected his substantial rights and here the supreme court says that there wasn't any testimony by a digma that would have been fatal to establishing the chain of custody in his case and so the state may have still been able to get around and get that evidence in and therefore the indictment didn't materially affect his substantial rights The next thing and the final thing they address is the common law procedure for withdrawing a plea after a conviction is available or is entered, and that that is available only when two things happen. One, uh, the Nebraska Post-Conviction Act is not and never was available as a means of of asserting the ground or grounds justifying the withdrawing of the plea, and a constitutional right is at issue. And here, there was a failure to plead that the Nebraska Post-Conviction Act had not and never was available as a means um, of appeal here. And so the failure to plead that was um, essentially waived the the ability to use that common law remedy. And so an interesting piece of law there, that if you're going to use that common law, you have to say that that was unavailable and was never available because that is a, a prerequisite for being able to have a common law withdrawal of a plea. And so the uh, Supreme Court affirmed. All right, I have NRA Interest of TW, which is under the DDCCA, which is for the Developmental Developmental Disabilities Court-Ordered Custody Act. Basically, when uh, an individual is alleged to be developmentally disabled and a threat or harm to others, they can come under the jurisdiction of the uh, courts, uh, district court, for kind of decisions regarding their safekeeping as opposed to going the criminal route. Um, there's been only, I think they talk in here, there's been only three cases up uh, in appellate courts 
regarding this act and the other two were kind of procedural. So this is a big case because it actually deals with the standard of review and deals with the merits of these kinds of cases and what considerations need to be made because the statute that's applied isn't particularly clear on, on what needs to be done on a statute of review or standard of review for these appeals. So they go into a standard of review. Uh, well, let me back up here. I don't know what the facts were that led uh, Mr. or Mrs. T.W., to uh, come under the developmentally disabled and threat uh, of a harm to others. I don't understand, that isn't in here. What is in here is their disposition. So uh, psychiatrists, excuse me, psychologists um, from the Nebraska Health and Human Services and a psychologist that was hired or or appointed to help with the TW's uh, case have competing discussions about what best to dispose of the situation in a least restrictive means so that uh, TW's liberty is not infringed. So they go in and they, they say, well, you can either go in a group home or you can go in a 24-hour surveillance with just one person, and which one's going to be better? HHS said you need the 24-hour surveillance with one person, and you have to have all of your internet activities monitored. The... Um, psychologist hired by TW's uh, team and attorneys and and to advocate their position indicated that a group home would be acceptable with 24-hour care. The court adopted HHS's plan as the least restrictive and actually went beyond it a little bit and said the district court said that um, we're going to not just have you be monitored on the internet. I'm going to ban all your internet. You can't have anything to do with the internet under this plan. So that's what the court ordered is no internet under any circumstances. You have to wear an ankle monitor and you have to have this surveillance uh, by this individual that HHS is proposing. So we got a couple issues here on appeal. What's the standard of review? What are we going to look at in order to determine, uh, you know, how are we going to look at this on appeal? So it goes through the history of the DDCCA and goes through what uh, it compares it to the mental health board appeals and how those are, are handled. Comes up with a different standard here. So they hold uh, that an appeal under a DDCCA, an appellate court reviews a district court's judgment of, or final order for errors appearing on the record. When reviewing a judgment for errors appearing on the record, the inquiry is whether the decision conforms to the law, is supported by competent evidence, and is neither arbitrary, capricious, capricious or nor unreasonable. So that's the standard that was adopted in this case. Now they go into this other issue, which I think is also interesting, is, well, this, this disposition that they're coming up with, they're going to have annual reviews. Is it a final appealable order? Because it's going to be reviewed every year, and it can be technically modified at any moment if somebody wants to bring it to the court's decision and set or court's attention and set it for hearing it could be modified at any time so is it a final appealable order they hold that an order of disposition under the ddcca deprives a subject of his or her liberty for an indeterminate period of time and it affects a substantial right because the order of disposition deprived tw of his liberty it, it, it is a he for an indeterminate period of time, it affected a substantial right, and therefore it's a final appealable order under those exceptions to final appealable orders so that it can be appealed and there's appellate procedure that permits it to go up. Um, my immediate question when I'm looking at that was, goes, okay, 
And a person is deprived of his or her liberty for an indeterminate period of time, and it affects a substantial right. Sounds like cash bail to me, but uh, that's my little pet issue that I have uh, with the uh, problems here. So anyway, they go into what's the least restrictive alternative for TW's placement. They go in the competing discussions regarding the psychologist. And the majority here finds that the uh, HHS's plan and the district court's modification of that plan to include a ban on all internet uh, is supported by the evidence and it's uh, affirmed on, on final appealable order. Now, three justices uh, file a concurrence where I think they would concur with the overall, um, uh, would they, they would have supported the restrictive placement that he was placed in and the uh, 24-hour sur surveillance, but they said that the district court going beyond what HHS suggested and just banning all internet was probably too much and wasn't supported by the evidence and they would have probably not uh, upheld that portion of it. But uh, it, as far as this goes, the TW is not going to have the internet and is not going to be uh, subject to any of these. But there's yearly reviews. So next year, uh, potentially, they could present different evidence. They could find a different way, and then it would go on appeal. And now we have a standard for how to review these on appeal. Cannot access Al Gore's internet. No, can't do it. And, okay. Well, what about a smart TV? That's true. What about a smart fridge? What you, <laughs> a you smart can, toaster? You can tweet from anything. Now. I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a toughie. So many things are internet. That's yeah, that's a great point. Is the AirTag an internet? Well, and just the dangers of not having internet in general. I mean, how oh, many yeah. people access internet only for you know usage of things like phones? And yeah, voice over internet protocol. What's it? What if they had an internet phone in the house? Wow. We're talking about problems. Pandora's box. There we go. I think ours. that's it for. I think that's it for the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court. It Am is I it correct? for the Nebraska Supreme Court. Let's go to Court of Appeals. All right, so we're jumping straight into the Court of Appeals, and we start out with a doozy, a thirty-four pager. Uh, this is Key versus Gilbert, and this case comes on a appeal from a divorce action and or paternity action in Lancaster County, and. I'll briefly summarize the facts, and the, the facts essentially here, the relevant facts, are that there is one child involved. There is a wife who lives in Lancaster County, and the husband, wife uh, being Key, who lives in Lancaster County, and the husband, Gilbert, who lives in Iowa. And uh, we run into, first and foremost, a uh, giant issue when the wife files an action in Lancaster County and the husband files an action in Iowa. And then we get this wonderful thing that I had had not even looked at since the bar exam and I kind of had hoped to never look at again, which is the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction and Enforcement Act, the UCCJEA. Yeah, that's right. That's a mouthful, but I think that's right. And so it comes into play because there are joint hearings or there are uh, joint actions filed, and we have to basically decide which court is going to have it. And so in order to decide that, there is a joint hearing, which I think sounds like an absolutely you know interesting thing to be involved in, where there are two sets of lawyers and two judges, one judge in Nebraska, one judge in Iowa. They're all on the same call. And at that point in time, there is a, a hearing they, they talk about the issues of the case, kind of what's going on jurisdictionally, and then everybody gets off the call and the two judges, just the two judges talk, and then there are orders issued as a result of that. And as a result of that conference, the Iowa judge um, essentially 
declined jurisdiction, saying that the more convenient forum in this case was Nebraska and was Lancaster County at district court. And so that is where this case, uh, the bulk of this case ends up taking place. And so after that, it's a pretty straightforward uh, divorce case as far as dealing with issues of um, child support, issues of dividing parenting time and, and dealing with all of those things. There are a couple of uh, complex things that come in as far as the discussions within the, the UCCJEA, which if you have any cases that run into that, this is a case where you probably want to go take a look at it. Lots of discussions of that law, but basically the Court of Appeals says, yeah, there was no issue with the judges discussing this after the call was done and not, you know, relaying a giant um, memorandum or brief of what was discussed, but essentially saying in their orders what they were both finding and, and that the Iowa court was declining jurisdiction and, and there was no error in doing that. And then also the other uh, discussion there is that even though the child, and here they were saying that the child's home state probably was Iowa, but another state can still be more appropriate and the other court can still decline uh, jurisdiction. And then the other issues that we get in here primarily re revolve around uh, the child support order that was uh, issued and how much had to be paid. There was some discussion about a, a workers' compensation settlement and going after that workers' compensation settlement in order to pay for some of this back child support. And then there was an award of uh, $30,000 of attorney's fees, which was uh, very high, and, and the court admitted that that was high. But both attorneys had submitted their fees at the end of this, and both were similarly priced. And so there the district court basically said, and then the Court of Appeals said that, you know, the court, the district court finding that, you know, they were they were fairly equal in, in ordering um, the, the payment of these was not um, an abuse of discretion, and there was no error in the court doing that, and eventually they affirmed. All right. I got... Uh... General Collection Company versus Ralissa Lehman and Michael Lehman Appellants and Golden Rule Insurance Company. Now, um, General Collection Company is the collection company that went after uh, the Lehmans regarding a medical debt, and then they have the debt. I think the Lehmans basically admitted to the whole thing, except that they said the Golden Rule Insurance Company should actually be responsible for everything. So when I'm speaking about anybody, it's likely not the general collection company because uh, they won and they're out and it's the Lehmans and Golden Rule deciding over who's going to have to pay for this. So uh, Miss Lehman um, unfortunately contracted uh, breast cancer at a certain point and she had a golden rule insurance um, for her breast cancer. They indicated that they were going to deny coverage because it was a pre-existing condition. She had a lump uh, on her breast from in 2014. Uh, she had a mammogram. It was negative, uh, but there was no biopsy done. And the mammogram indicated that there was, you know, a, it was dense tissue, so they weren't able to be dispositive, and the, maybe the lump should have been investigated. So that's in the medical records. So um, she ends up uh, saying that the uh, insurance company is wrong if, to deny that, and because she paid her premiums, it, she should be entitled to coverage from the insurance company. So a motion for summary judgment on behalf of the Lehmans was denied ultimately in the district court and it was granted in favor of the insurance company what was admitted at the 
um, motion for summary judgment stage was the medical records and they were admitted as business records on behalf of Golden Rule Insurance Company. This I think is an interesting thing. So because they normally receive medical records, the insurance company does, and they went through all the foundational uh, aspects to receive the medical records, it was received as a business record of Golden Rule Insurance Company, all of the medical records on uh, for Ms. Lehman. So they have all the medical records for her. There was also a claim that they waived, the Golden Rule Insurance Company waived the pre-existing condition argument by retention of the insurance premiums. There's some uh, case law that suggests that if you're going to void or rescind an agreement for an insurance person, you have to refund all of their past premiums. So if you're going to do that, you got to get rid of uh, all the premium or got to refund all the uh, things you're going you've um, taken from your the person under the contracted insurance coverage, and you have to rescind that. Otherwise, you're waiving it. So here, um, when it goes up on appeal following the district court's granting of the insurance company's uh, appeal or excuse me, summary judgment, the court here in court of appeals is faced with whether there's a genuine issue of material fact present. Now, um, there's a good discussion, like I said, regarding the medical records as an insurance business records and that portion of the um, assignment of error regarding the court's receipt of those medical records, that was affirmed. So um, the insurance records can be business records, or excuse me, the medical records can be um, business records for the insurance. Now, the number two question is that they didn't cancel or rescind the policy. So that was the waiver argument um, didn't work because the um, insurance company didn't say they canceled it or rescinded. They said under the terms of the agreement that what you had is a pre-existing condition. So we don't have to give you a premium refund. Now, this is where the district court gets reversed. The summary judgment for the Golden Rule Insurance Company, it was based on the pre-existing condition. Now, there's a great law chunk on um, pre-existing conditions and how those are defined in insurance contracts and looking at other jurisdictions and how that, those are going to be defined and whether it's open to interpretation on what a pre-existing condition is. The court here finds that it is ambiguous and that because it is ambiguous, the pre-existing condition definition um, on whether uh, you know an ordinarily prudent person would have gone and got the biopsy for that lump, even though it hadn't grown over a certain number of years and wasn't exactly being pushed in that way and had a negative um, mammogram, whether that would be a pre-existing, whether that would be something that somebody would have to go and get a biopsy for or a reasonable prudent person would, that is for a fact finder, not for the motion for summary judgments uh, phase. So if you have a motion for summary judgment, take a look at this because I think you're going to get some good language um, about how uh, those standards need to be very much for um, the against the thought of, you know, denying somebody the right to move forward in their claim. It's got to be pretty, pretty certain pro litigation of the issues. Yeah, that's what they're doing, and that's what it's always been. It's just it always feels like maybe it's the pendulum swings a little bit. I don't know, but this is a, a good decision uh, for that discussion. All right, good case there, hidden out. Uh, the next case we come to is Linval versus Lundberg, and this is an appeal from a uh, modification order uh, by the district court of Lancaster County. And here the big issue or the big thing at issue is that the father is arguing that mother's parenting 
and the disagreements between the two resulted in a material change in circumstances. And the district court actually comes along and, and finds that indeed it has uh, it had changed and that the father's position was correct and that in light of their contentious relationship that the existing parenting time schedule was unworkable. And so therefore the, the court granted that modification, modified the current visitation and parenting and proceeded that way. On appeal, the big issue is that there is whether or not there was even a change of circumstances here. And so again, we talk about law chunks here, great law chunks for change of circumstances when that exists. And the fact that proving that there is a change in circumstances is not an optional element to a modification proceeding. It's a threshold that you must meet in order to have any kind of modification here. And so the Court of Appeals ultimately finds that even though these parents were having disagreements, weren't getting along, that maybe there, there were issues here, it did not rise to that level of change in circumstances, and therefore there was no ability for this court to order modification, and, and therefore they reversed and dismissed the complaint for modification uh, because of that, that lack of change in circumstances. All right. I've got uh, Gradelt v. Gradelt. This was a long marriage where there was a premarital house. There were improvements on the house during the marriage. Uh, this is a divorce, by the way. And there were improvements on the house during the marriage. And the uh, house that was the wife owned pre-marriage was uh, with her mom, was ultimately deeded to the wife uh, from her mother as a gift during the marriage. Now, this is one of the uh, new cases where we have to look at the Pard case that we had from the Supreme Court a few weeks ago, um, or maybe a few months ago. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's months, months, but it all blends. It all blends. <laughs> well, uh, multiple weeks would be months. That's true. If you add up enough weeks, <laughs> it comes to years. I said plural. Uh, okay, so they, they're looking at the Pard case, and we're interpreting the Pard case. So because that Pard case was a, kind of a big one, um, looking at all these little cases and seeing how the appellate courts are going to sort this out, especially the Court of Appeals, who's going to who are going to see a lot of these uh, divorce cases, those are going to be important. So you might want to take a look at this. They, they go through the Pard case. They have a good uh, explanation of the history of that. And then they ultimately find that the um, house, that because of the way it was deeded, the district court found that the home was non-marital. And on appeal, it was also held to be non-marital. There's a good discussion, well, not a good discussion, a brief discussion, I should say, of the Community Property Act of 1947. Uh, we have that making its way into this case and um, saying that married, uh, adding that to a deed uh, with somebody, so saying, uh, you know, um, Joe Smith married on a deed is insufficient to include uh, the unnamed spouse as a joint tenant. So there's some uh, interesting discussion there. If you're wondering how the hard case is going to shake out, uh, this might be a, a good way to interpret this or maybe carve out some things that you're trying to do uh, in your own practice. What year did you say that was? 1947. We'll have to ask our partner to maybe explain that to us. Yeah, I believe there were some uh, UFOs that may have landed in Roswell around that time, but I'm not going to get into that big news either this week. Next this isn't that kind of show. <laughs> that is not, we are not that kind of show. Next case we have is Hire versus Target Corporation. This is an appeal from a granting of summary judgment in the district court for Douglas County. And this is a premises liability case where the issue was a slip and fall on ice in the uh, winter of 2019, so January of 2019. And the factual issues are essentially whether or not ice melt was applied uh, when it should have been applied. And, and here, the granting of summary judgment was based on the open and notorious nature 
of the ice and the fact that it was uh, raining, freezing rain and drizzling rain at that time. And so the condition was open and, and notorious. And so there was an ordinary duty of reasonable care. And therefore, uh, there was no breach of um, the, the duty by uh, target to this person. And so, again, this is another case where if you have a premises liability case, you want some law chunks. If you want any law chunks about open and notorious and those kind of things as far as conditions and their existence, this is another one of those cases, a uh, very short and brief case. But if you ever want to have another one of those cases where there are those law chunks regarding those premises liabilities and regarding those uh, theories of negligence, those tort theories, that's a uh, good case for that. But the ultimately, the district court was affirmed. Got a contempt action, Larson v. Larson. Um, the district court found no contempt and in order to sell a marital home, uh, the parties were divorced in, by decree of dissolution of marriage on November 11th, 2017. Uh, wife was ordered to make payments on all of the um, mortgage, taxes, and insurance and everything related to the house until it was sold. Well, come four or five years later, the house isn't sold. Uh, husband brings a contempt action and um, the issue here was a f basically uh, whether there was contempt or not on review and whether there was enough to review it because there was a failure to request the bill of exceptions in time. Uh, there was no record of the contempt hearing because the bill of exceptions wasn't requested at the same time as the notice of appeal. So that is the takeaway from this one is, is file your request for bill of exception or your precipice for bill of exceptions at the same time as notice of appeal. Um, otherwise, there's not much that the uh, appellate court can look at in order to find a reversal. They, uh, they're, I think they just have to look at, they're going to look at the pleadings and whether it's sound. Um, and here, because there was no record of the contempt hearing, there's nothing they can really find uh, that says it wasn't sound. So they say that it was affirmed. Okay, next case we come to is State versus Booker. This is an appeal from the Douglas County District Court's denial of a motion to transfer Booker's criminal case to the juvenile court. We've ran into a ton of these over the last few weeks, and so I won't um, go a ton into it. But the basic facts of this case were that Booker was in a vehicle where shots were fired, um, speeds off. He eventually was uh, identified and and apprehended at that point in time he possessed and this case has possessed an am-15 rifle i think that means ar-15 maybe it means am-15 i i was kind of confused by that but not sure i think that's just a typo and then uh fifty seven hundred dollars in cash and essentially the big uh, crux of the the issue of this case, all the, the normal relevant factors, and the big one was that Booker at this point in time was already 17, and the court uh, discussed at length that while you know there is an opportunity to provide s services here, by the time this all gets done, he's going to be 19, and even if those services worked or didn't work, we're not going to have the ability to know that, and so... Um, that that was one of the big grounds for not transferring this case. And that that's something I, I feel like you run into a lot with these juvenile cases is that because of how long proceedings take, you're continually abutting up against, you know, if you're 17, 18, if it's on the border, you know, there's plenty of juvenile services that can be in place. But how quickly can you get those things in place and how quickly can you see if they work? And it seems like district courts are put in a difficult position of deciding what to do with these. And here the district court erred on the side of not transferring and the Court of Appeals affirmed. Well, there you go. Uh, I think that's it for another week. I think that's that. Well, I'm glad that 
we were not able to discuss anything interesting that happened in the legal or political community on June 9th, 2023. Kind of a mundane day. Did you know who Lionel Messi was, though? Had you seen that on your Twitter feed? That that's nothing to you. That's that blow, Yeah, that blows my mind. <laughs> so he's coming. He just won a World Cup. Okay, he has like good a, for him. He has a gazillion followers on social media and those Dollars. kind of things. Yes, and okay. he's co- well, he, and he's coming to the United States, and it's been the absolute gonna wave. He's going to play soccer. What for who? And, oh, in MLS for a team called Inter Miami. Good for Miami. Yes. Yeah, good for Miami. Florida's good finally going to yes, have a Florida's good sports finest. team. Yes, they can finally do Well, no, they're actually terrible, but maybe he can turn it around for them. Oh, okay. But I can't believe you hadn't seen that news. I mean, I don't follow soccer. No, no I know, but it was very social media American heavy. Football. Well, that's true. American limited... football. It's almost time for it to come back. It'll be back in a week or two, right? What, American football? Yeah. My son, Weeks. my son, who's uh, my middle son, my, well second son he's obsessed with football so he's watching like xfl or what oh, is it yes so xfl's done but now we have uh it's what something is that else. called yeah there's another kind of football it's, a, it's some yeah. kind of football league and he's obsessed with it and i don't know anything about it football's football you <sighs> can watch football any time of the year i guess i'm a traditionalist anyway that's it for point two law review i'm john brant and i am carson messersmith have a great week everybody <laughs>